0: Hey, this is Jen. Before we get started with today's show, I have a quick ask of you. If the show has helped you in any way, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show. Let us know what you think, let us know what's helped you, let us know what you want more of, what you want less of. But just take a couple minutes to do that. It would mean a ton to me and it'll help us get better and better in the future. I really do want to hear from you. The birth of a baby is a joyful event, but for many women, that joy can become overshadowed by postpartum depression. According to the American Psychological Association, up to one in seven women experience this serious mood disorder. But despite its prevalence, many do not seek the help and support they need due to stigmas and misinformation. One way we can all help break down these barriers is by sharing personal stories and experiences to build greater awareness about postpartum depression. This is the Work Well podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm honored to be joined today by three mothers who also happen to be some of my amazing colleagues from Deloitte, Leticia Roynesdal, Elizabeth Lascaz, and Caitlin Goodrich. So I want to kind of go around here. We're not used to having so many people on one show, so I'm excited. It's like a roundtable. Can you each just share a little bit about your experience in your own story uh, with postpartum depression? Elizabeth, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, about nine weeks into my pregnancy with my twins,
1: I started having some complications um, I had a couple of large benign tumors that were growing in my uterus. And so my doctor warned me from the outset that it was going to be a difficult and painful pregnancy. And the risk for me losing, you know, the babies at seven months or seven weeks would be the same. And so around 23 weeks, I went into labor in the LA office, actually, on a Friday afternoon And then that following Monday, I went into the hospital and was admitted to the high-risk perinatal unit where I ended up staying unexpectedly, but on my back on complete hospital bed rest for three months. And so it was a daily fight for my boys' lives and my health. And by some messy, messy miracle, they made it to um, what's considered twin term at 36 weeks. Uh, And then I was able to bring Carter and Harrison home. And when I came home from the hospital, you know, the first thing that I actually experienced was PTSD. So there were a lot of things, sounds like alarms or loud PA announcements or certain songs or smells uh, and sensations would really send me into a tailspin. And I'd find sometimes I'd wake up in a certain position. I'd I'd think I was back in the hospital bed and just everything was completely disorienting. Uh, to me, because I never felt like I knew where I was. So, I did start therapy uh, not too long after I got home from the hospital for the PTSD just to get the panic attacks under control. The postpartum depression for me didn't actually hit until several months later. So, my boys were about 10 months old, and I had just returned uh, from my maternity leave. And I realized, like, after I had gotten the PTSD under control, I was like, I'm really, really tired, like in a way that I didn't know was possible. And so I mentioned it to a few friends, one of which uh, is a therapist. And she was like, you know, I think you should go and and get looked at and so I went I saw my doctor and she was like of course you're tired you have twins and I was like this feels different I've been tired my whole life because I've been doing stuff my whole life but this really feels different it's like the energy it takes to do something as simple as brush my teeth felt like I was swimming against a riptide so um she ended up doing an assessment she came back she's like you're not anemic but you do have postpartum depression and you know she started working with me
0: um to kind of put together a wellness plan. Wow. Well, we'll get into what that looked like for you, but I'd love to hear from our other two guests. Leticia, how about you?
2: Sure. And, and I just want to say that Elizabeth was actually um, a critical piece of my postpartum story, you know, and, and I had a very different experience. So um, I had, I actually have two kids. So I have a four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And it was with my second child, my daughter, Daniela, where um, being home with her for six months was such a blessing, but it was also kind of a blurry, hazy time for me. Um, and once my husband had gone back to work and my mom was here from Brazil for a while, when she had left, I started realizing that I just I kept wanting to find more things to do. So I kept kind of adding things to my day with my daughter. So I was like, Oh, we're gonna go to mommy boot camp, we're gonna go to Target and I just would create these like long lists of things to do. Um, and then I would cry. I would cry a lot. And I wasn't really understanding why. um, And I didn't have any issues, you know, bonding with her, which is is kind of the classic thing that you hear with postpartum depression. So it probably took me um, 18 months to two full years before I started to realize what had happened. And um, this year in January is actually when I started to get help. So after going through um, postpartum, what they've, you know, what my doctor and my team around me has now said is that I actually went from Postpartum depression, um, what my husband describes as my cloud phase, I, I and mean, it really was a cloud to my family. I mean, I was either constantly crying or just just kind of numb, um, and transitioned into high anxiety, chronic anxiety, where to battle the numbness and to battle the sadness. You know, that behavior of making lists and doing more things became kind of my survival mode. So I was really in fight or flight at all times. So it took me you know, two years to, to really start to be able to put words to what had happened, why I was so sad and kind of how I moved past it, but into something just as serious and just as hard to manage. Um, and it was seeing stories like Elizabeth's who was in my network, somebody I work with and then Caitlin, um, and I know she'll share her story and and, and starting to see, okay, I, I recognize some parts of this and maybe something isn't okay with me. Maybe it's not my fault. You know, maybe, maybe I actually need some help. Um, and, you know, December, when we had some time off for the holidays is when it all kind of came to a head for me. And I just said, you know what, it's time to do something about this. I don't want to be numb anymore. I don't want to be sad anymore. There is so much joy in my life. How do I start to regain control for myself?
0: I commonly have heard about postpartum depression kind of transitioning into anxiety. And so I'd love to explore that a little bit. But, but Caitlin, can, can you share your story with us? Absolutely.
3: I um, am struck both by the similarities and the differences between Mm -hmm. um, between Leticia and Elizabeth and my story and I think that's part of the part of the thing about postpartum depression that's so interesting is how it can manifest so similarly and show up so differently. So for me it was I think part hormonal and part um, like mental health and transition related. So um, Clark was born in, in April, and it wasn't actually until nine months postpartum that I really recognized and started to feel um, what I could name as postpartum depression. I felt like I had been prepped through my, through my doula, through my classes for, for something I thought would show up within the first few months after postpartum or after Clark was born and, and it didn't for me. So for me, it was when we actually finally sleep trained him, which don't wait until nine months to sleep train. Um, but, but it showed up in nine months because I stopped breastfeeding as often. And I think that kicked off a series of hormonal changes that coincided with me being back at work for about three months. I, I was feeling like, oh no, everything that I thought was okay isn't okay anymore. Um, and so it felt confusing because it was quote unquote late in my, in my head. Um, and in general, people kind of s- had stopped checking in, so the the questions about how it was going and how I was doing had stopped, and the external triggers to evaluate were fewer. Uh, I also internalize a lot, so I put <laughs> so I put a lot of energy into making sure that things looked okay from the outside, and I'm pretty good at that, um, which is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it let me keep functioning pretty well for a while, but I also added to this like sadness and isolation that just was compounding over time because from everyone else's perspective I was doing fine and and things were things were the way they were supposed to be um, so similar to what Leticia mentioned I think for me postpartum depression really showed up um, as if I I I think instead of me being the cloud I felt like I was walking under a cloud all the time um, everything was muted like joy humor excitement and Honestly, even sadness to a certain extent. Like I just didn't didn't feel things. And um, and Clark is such a joy and there are so many good things in my life. And I, I just realized I am dragging myself around and coping, but I feel lonely and I feel sad all the time. How do I how do I get out of this? Even if it's so much later than I thought postpartum depression should should show up, quote unquote should
0: you know, I guess I've always thought that it was something that that happened pretty quickly, but it sounds like in the three of you and your experiences, it was a little bit later, but I don't know if that's, that's common for people.
1: Yeah. Um, So in the work that I've done with, you know, my doctor and my therapist, they both have said yes. And I, Mm -hmm. and it's a very wide ranging, if you, if you think about it, like trimesters, it's like, the pregnancy continues even after the baby's here. And so with it, so does some of the trauma and just the adjustments. And, you know, I'm no medical expert by any means, but Caitlin touched on this. uh, And it's true, you know, from what I've learned from my doctor, which is that postpartum depression can be both physical and hormonal. It can also be situational. And in fact, most of the time, it's a blend of the two. And so just depending on what that hormonal balance is, like, you know, right after birth and delivery, some people may experience it, you know, a little bit closer. Like, from the beginning, I I kept saying, I'm like, you know, they say everybody has the postpartum blues, and from the get-go, I was like, I've got the purples. Like, it's something Mm -hmm. that's, like, way deeper than the blues, but I don't know what it is. But, um, you know, in terms of when it really came to a head and felt like it was incapacitating, it, it was much later, um, in the journey for me but the other thing i i want to point out that my doctor also said to me you know there's a lot of stigma around postpartum depression and when i was diagnosed with it my first response to the doctor was actually no i don't have it and she said women in corporate america oftentimes are disproportionately affected by postpartum depression but are the least likely to do anything about it because we tend to just try and muscle through
0: Leticia, I wanted to to go back to you um, and, and explore the the anxiety, the postpartum anxiety that, that you talked about.
2: Sure, sure and I think you know what I was lucky to have is I was lucky to have a husband who was home for um, quite a while after you know Daniela was born and I was also lucky to have my mom in the house and what's really interesting is, I feel like I had a little bit of an out-of-body experience for probably the first year with this because that's my cloud phase, right? So it's the phase where I couldn't hear it. I couldn't, I, you know, my husband was like, you're crying a lot. This this is not okay. You know, can we get you some help? My mom was like, well, you know, you're very snippety and you're, you're kind of not being yourself. You're being rude. Are you okay? And I just, I really couldn't hear any of this, right? And so... I just I wouldn't listen, and it wasn't because I was trying to be stubborn. It was because literally I was so tired, and I was just trying to kind of survive. But it was like if I gave this attention and gave it words and gave it you know an emotion, um, it would be very real. And I, I wasn't ready to tackle that. So I think as I transitioned towards anxiety, it became a how do I just stay focused? How do I survive? And I, I came back from maternity leave into an amazing role as chief of staff for one of our leaders in the firm, and he's such a family-oriented guy and such a supportive. Role model for me, Um, and I I didn't even have the words to talk to him about it, right? But what I wanted to do was do well in that role, and so that became my focus. It was like, how do I, you know, do well in this role? How do I do him justice? How do I do my practice justice? And so it kind of evolved from there. Um, And I realized that it was I was doing well, right? You know, I was high performing. I mean, I kept on my journey and I kept going, and it and it wasn't until there was silence that I started to realize that when I had silence, my brain was actually spiraling. So I had moments when I was driving and I would um, start to feel like the cars next to me were going to run into me. And then not only were they going to run into me, but they were actually going to push me off this bridge. And how would I get out of the car if I got pushed off this bridge? And so I would have these, you know, what I would call almost like wormhole moments in my brain. And it would, it would, it was impossible to get myself out of it. The only way to get out of it was to distract my brain with something else. Um, And I would say, Jen, that that's when I realized that the, all of the planning that I was doing and all of the attempts at focusing and all of the attempts at just trying to kind of keep going were attempts at avoiding silence and avoiding silence with myself. Um, And, you know, the, the lack of a, the lack of being able to give my feelings words and name it was avoidance, Um, you know, and then. I went to Norway last summer. My brother was getting married. We we took the kids, you know, all this stuff. And it was, it was, I think Elizabeth, you mentioned this and and Caitlin, you did too. It was, this is a happy moment. I am not happy. Actually, I feel nothing, right? What's the next thing I got to get done? And so literally every moment of my life was a, I recognize, I acknowledge, I'm going to move forward. So in December, when I had the Christmas break, December of 2019, so Danielle was almost two, I you know, told my husband, you know what, I think I'm ready to listen. Um, I think I'm ready to talk about this now, and I don't feel okay. I, and then I talked to him about the moments that I was having when I was driving, the moments that I was having before I went to sleep, and, and just the spiraling that my brain would go into. And it's not like I was, I was crying in those moments. I wasn't having an outward panic attack. It was all inside of me. And that was, you know, that's really when we said, okay, you know, actually, I think that we can't handle this on our own anymore. Um, you know, you can't keep living like this. And let's do something about it. And that's, I think it's going to be an ongoing journey for me, Jen. I, I don't think this is going to stop, right? I mean, this is something that for me, I think I'm going to have to always try and understand my triggers and try and understand like how to calm myself yeah. down and, and how to communicate about it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I, I think for, for many people, it is it's an ongoing journey. And those of us that struggle with our mental health, regardless of what it is, we don't wear a blinking sign on our head, (laughs) you know? And so, and so we, you know, we struggle internally. Um, So um, Caitlin, how did you decide to, to share your story and what made it feel right to, to start talking about it?
3: Yeah, it, it took, it took a while and, um, and sort of an external annual tradition to, to, to I'm going to say, force me into it. When I was in the thick of it, the, the group I told was very small. I you know As I shared, my coping strategy was to internalize what was going on and to make it look like everything was okay, while at the same time, just <laughs> implicitly begging for someone to notice that it wasn't, which is the exact opposite of how life works. Um, and so initially, I really just shared with with um, one of the leaders on my project, who I was close to. She had coached me through her experiences returning to the firm after after her two kids were born um, and had shared elements of her experience that I that I knew she would she would recognize kind of what I what I was going through and what I needed. And her support was critical just because to me, I think, it's important that I feel, feel seen. Um, And Mm -hmm. so she was able to provide that for me. Similarly, one of my mentors um, who also had similar experiences with returning to work and trying to navigate how to do this with kids. She, she was one of the kind of two people at the firm that I confided in initially. And then even in my personal life, I think, you know, my husband was aware of everything that was going on. It was a couple months before I told my parents and, and it really, I felt like I felt like I needed to tell people more so that I didn't continue having these walls up that people couldn't get through. But we we send a very newsy <laughs> letter at Christmas every year to about 150 people and the list grows every year. We talk about what's going on in our family and share pictures. And it's like a physical letter. So we we write it around Thanksgiving every year. And I remember thinking, okay, this is the moment. Either I'm gonna write about what's really happened this year, or I'm going to skip it. And, and I just knew I couldn't skip it and feel good about, about that. I didn't want to just share the good stuff that was going on uh, without sharing what was really happening. So decided to write about it in that letter. Um, and then you know, snail mailed it to 150 people, which includes a big group of professional folks at Deloitte, people in my personal life. Uh, and was aware that for some people who I'm pretty close to, it would feel strange to get a letter that they know go to, goes to a lot of people to explain this big thing that had been happening to me. And for others that we aren't super close to, they would be like, wow, that's a lot to share. Um, and so, But I just figured I, I needed to take that moment to do it. And it was really gratifying. Folks I work with would come up to me in the next couple of days and say, "I, you know, I, we got your letter, thanks so much for sharing. Or I'd hear stories from them about their wives or themselves or their their people in their lives who had experienced similar things and so it was just it was nice to to see that and then to also kind of recognize who was comfortable <laughs> engaging with that content essentially and and it told me kind of who I could lean on in the future if I needed to. Yeah.
0: Elizabeth, you you touched on this and I think a lot of mothers you know, fear that if you do have postpartum depression, you get diagnosed or anxiety, it means you can't be high performing, and mm-hmm. then it could impact your career. So what are your thoughts on this, you know, based on your own experience, and then, you know, things that, that you've seen, because I know that you have, you've become quite the inspiration and pillar in our firm around this, which is so cool.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so the first thing I'd say, which is probably
1: my biggest learning from the entire 18-month journey that I had with postpartum depression is that being broken and badass are not mutually exclusive. And so during one of, you know, at the height of my postpartum depression is one of the hardest years of my life, full stop. That was it. I also had the best performance year in four years at the firm. And I have no idea what that means, except for perhaps a gentle reminder that just because somebody wears something well, so you might wear trauma well or grief, whatever, um, doesn't mean that it's not heavy. And so that was something that stood out to me. And when I think back on the journey, when I came back from maternity leave, I think I felt like I needed to get back in, prove myself really quickly before I could ask for help. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, Also, as I was uh, shortly after I came back, we did a cross-country move from Los Angeles to Boston so that we could get back close to family and get me some support. And as we were leaving, somebody gave me a journal. And the journal on the cover, it said, bloom where you're planted. And I remember looking at it and thinking about how I felt at the moment. And I was like, I have zero energy to bloom. In fact, I actually feel like I'm withering right now. And that slogan started to feel like pressure. Until I remember we were on the plane and I'm like, got a kid on my lap and I've got my internet up and I'm like doing some research and this whole, the word dormancy just came to my mind for some reason. And so I started like looking it up online and was like, oh my gosh, dormancy is this period of time that a plant pauses growth to protect itself from adverse growing conditions or sometimes just recharge for the next bloom. And while it's dormant, there's still life at the core and that plant is actually rooting deeper. And, it, and here's the thing, nobody throws the plant away while it's dormant because it's already proven itself. And we know exactly what we're gonna get in terms of beauty and comfort when that plant reblooms. So there's nothing in nature that blooms all year, neither should we. And so instead it became this model for me to be gracious to myself, whether I'm in an, a mental health episode, or whether I'm in a healthy, you know, typical state, and to remember that dormancy is the difference between being buried and being planted. And so I I went to my PMD at the time with that exact analogy, and I was like, Dana, you know me, we've been working together for four years, like, this is a dormant period for me, and I need you to give me some air cover while I find my way back, but, you know, when I do, you you know what you're going to get. And so I I just, I, that became such a powerful anchor for me and that I still use, you know, even now. Um, And so encourage people to hang on to that. Yeah. And I I think that's what inspired your blog, is it not? Yes, it is. It is. So I do, I've got an online blog and, you know, at first I started writing about the experience um, because it was cathartic. Mm -hmm. Then the number of women, Deloitte women, who reached out to me, um, you know, either after finding the blog or somebody referring them to. It's how Leticia and I became friends, you know, Caitlin and I got to know each other through a reference through the blog. It was unbelievable to me the number of women who reached out to say, Hey, I've had a similar experience. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't have language for it. Thanks for talking about it. Or, you know, even some other people who were in, you know, um, far worse shape and, you know, their their safety was on the line. And, and I realized how powerful of a tool it is for us to share our stories because we are destigmatizing it and allowing each other to ask and get the help that we need. And also, I think we are all trying to, you know, figure out this thing called life. And so if we're sharing our stories, we're all writing a chapter in that survival guide. You know, so I, that that to me, it is become, it's morphed into this kind of community for my motherhood journey. And I've appreciated that because it was nothing like I had ever seen on social media, which was like these beautiful gender reveals and like these really like skinny moms right after their pregnancy. And I was like, wait, what is happening to me? Because <laughs> This does not feel like anything I've
0: ever seen Kind of staying along those lines, Leticia, what's one thing that, that, you know, you would want leaders and colleagues to know, how can they support just employees in general that are that are navigating through their, their mental health and well-being?
2: Yeah, and I think there's really two big things, Jen. I think the first thing is we really have to look at what our people are working on, you know, what's on their plate, specifically in consulting, where we've got You know, high stakes client service roles, um, important relationships to build and at different levels, you feel different pieces of ownership of that puzzle, but it's a really critical puzzle, right? So how do we kind of build that trust, build that relationship, manage projects, but then also develop our people in our firm? And it ends up being a lot. And so one of the biggest takeaways for me is I am one of those people that will just keep taking things on. Right. As I came back from maternity leave, I fostered a dog and adopted that dog. Um, so, you know, why not? I'm transitioning. I have a four year, you know, at the time, a two year old, a baby. Let's add a puppy. Go for it. Right. So I, I, I would just take more on. Um, And it would be a question of I can keep doing this. I can keep doing this. I've got this. And so taking a look at what are people doing? Is that value add? Is that critical right now? What can we help them prioritize? What can we help them stop? Um, How do we find what truly energizes them, what truly strengthens them and and help them focus there um, versus everything that they're thrown to, into. So I think that's one big ask that I have of, of just leaders. And it's an ask that I've taken on for myself with my own teams. Do you really need to be doing all of this? How do we counsel ourselves out of some of it?
0: I call that having the courage to do less. Yes, <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. I love that. <laughs> so much more <laughs> eloquent. That's exactly right. So much more elegant than what I just said. But that's exactly right. It's 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 okay to say no. Um, it's okay to say, I actually just don't think that I can take this on and do it justice. And that takes not only courage, but it takes a support system to do that. I, I feel like some of our more junior employees and practitioners are, are worried of saying are worried to say no. So how do we you know, stand up and say, I'm actually going to proactively work with you on this and and take a look at what you're doing and, and where you're spending your time. So that's one big ask that I do have of, of all of us. And the second one is conversations like this. It's just sharing your story. Both Elizabeth and Caitlin have mentioned how when they shared their stories, it actually had a really big impact on mine. And I wasn't ready yet to tackle my own story and to tackle my own journey. And that's okay. But the more we talk about it, the more we share, not just postpartum, but you know, well-being examples and sharing share what we're doing for ourselves. The more transparent we are, I think we just create acceptance and we create you know, less, we destigmatize de- um, yes. well-being and mental well-being. So that's something I've taken on with my team and my team's joke that sometimes I should start like a mommy blog because I share it <laughs> with my house. I'm like... My house today is chaos. Just bear with me. You know, and my son will come in and have to sit on my shoulder and cry while I'm leading a call. And, and all of it's happening and it's messy. And I, I also share what I'm doing for myself. I share my therapy time. I'm like, guys, this is therapy for me. Fridays at 1 p.m. Please don't schedule over it unless you absolutely need to and come talk to me beforehand. So I try as much as possible to show them that to be successful at the firm, you have to take care of yourself as well.
0: You're speaking my language, lady. I like it.
2: (laughs) It's a hard journey, but we got to do it, right? And we've got to see other people do it, too, just to make sure that we know that there's a path forward.
1: Jen, you know, I think there's one thing, too, that I would I, I would add to that, because I, I agree 100%. I think, though, you know, you made a point earlier, which is that with mental health, we may not always wear a sign, right? It's not like if I broke my arm and I wore a sling and people know to ask mm-hmm. me, that's okay. And I do think there's something that we can do exploring the language that we use. So, oh, yeah. you know, for people who looked at my journey or when I came back, they'd say things like, Oh, you're so strong. And (laughs) while it was meant to be an encouragement, at some point it actually felt like more of a burden. And I didn't feel like it created space that it was okay for me to say that I wasn't okay or that I didn't want, it's like, I'm, I'm so strong, not by choice. I mean, like I didn't ask for this particular situation. So I do think that also there's something we can, we can do that are, you know, it's, it's a signal that this is a safe space to be real and to be okay. And, you know, everything that Leticia said about how we model that and and show it, but I do think language is really important, Um,
0: you know, and and what we say to people before asking them if they're okay. Yeah. I I completely agree. And, you know, giving people permission to not be strong. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, Because, because we're not all strong all the time, we shouldn't expect ourselves to be, and we shouldn't expect others to be, and and we need That's to make right. that okay. Yeah. So thank you for that. So Caitlin, um, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because I hear that you're going to be on leave soon. Um, I with will. Your, with your your second, is it your is it a boy? It's your son. It is a boy. Yes, the second awesome. second boy. And you are also working towards a promotion. So what made you decide to go for a promotion, given all the challenges in our current environment?
3: Yes, good question. And one I have re-asked myself a few times um, after I decided to, although I ultimately feel that it was it was absolutely the right decision. Um, so the, the short answer is twofold. One, I do feel well enough. Um, and I think it's important that I... S- start there, uh, because I didn't feel well enough for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. and, and honestly uh, deciding to, to get pregnant a second time was also an outgrowth of, of feeling well enough. And so I don't want to skip over the part where I, where I acknowledge that I am fortunate to have, you know, made a, a hilly return to something that feels more like myself, um, Before I decided to do that. Um, And then the second, I think similar to a lot of people um, in in the firm and in, uh, you know, high high pressure, sort of high performance environments, I do have a strong bias for action and a strong bias for advancement. And I think that I didn't want to take myself out of the running for something just because we had childcare struggles and um, a pandemic and my pregnancy. Um, And so I said, these circumstances will not dictate the the rings I throw my name into, and so I have proactively taken on building my case for senior manager um, and and making you know the pitches to all of the firm leaders that I need to make before I go out on leave.
0: Good for you, and and way to you know control that control what's controllable, right? We can't control <laughs> yeah. what's uncontrollable, so um, I, I I love that. What have you been doing to proactively prepare? Yes. That has been a major focus of my, me and my therapist's conversations. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, is there is there some, is there some fear there?
3: There is for sure. Um, And I think it's compounded by, by COVID and everything that's Mm -hmm. going on. Um, I'm much more, aware of and apprehensive about actually giving birth than I was the first time, which is mainly because in my mind, there's this there's this COVID test. I will go into the hospital, I will take a COVID test, even though we're doing all the things I can to reduce my exposure, if that test comes back positive, I'm in isolation, my husband's sent home and I labor and deliver much more alone than I did last time. And that, and then the baby is going to be in isolation as well. And that that moment around that mm-hmm. test that I can't I, I can't control, but will have huge follow on impacts for me, um, has been has been really scary, honestly. Um, and so, so I've been trying to just come to terms with the reality of that, and envisioning what I would need after the baby is born and I come home. To rebuild the protections I have in place, or um, you know, just just recover from some, from that that could happen, while also keeping in mind that everything could go the way I anticipate it going. Don't test positive for COVID. Come home after birth, and it could still, you know, postpartum depression could come back, and I and I still need to think through that. So, so one of the big things that I've been doing is staying in therapy. And then the second thing is I've been making plans for leave. My husband and I bought a camper. Um, And one of the things I really struggle with is like feeling stuck. I felt really stuck after Clark was Mm -hmm. born because it was summer in Texas and I was on leave and I was at home alone and I didn't want to go outside because it was a million degrees and the baby couldn't handle it, but I was just like stuck in my house. Admittedly, the last four months of being stuck in my house have really (laughs) helped me through that. (laughs) But (laughs) in preparation, we've bought a camper so I can go somewhere at least and bring air conditioning in a bathroom with me. I love that. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) and then the other, I think the like, There are two more things I've done. And and the third thing is like identifying what are red flags. So like I mentioned, I'm so bad at answering, how are you doing when I'm not doing well? And um, so part of what like my therapist and I've worked through is like, what are the red flags that I can alert my family and support system to? And one of them is that I like stop planning and getting excited about things and trying to plan our next camper trip or like what we're going to do this weekend or whatever. If I stop doing that, my husband knows that like things are are not okay. And then the, the fourth piece is just like lining up who's going to be here physically when so that I've got support for as long as possible after the baby's born.
0: So Elizabeth, I think I have a, a two-part question for you. You know, if you can talk a little bit about your healing journey and and the support that exists for those that are struggling with postpartum depression, and then also um, kind of wrapping into that, um, we've talked about this a little bit, is, is COVID and kind of mm-hmm. how is this impacting or, or triggering Postpartum depression, yeah, yeah. So there's like you know a wide range of
1: <clears throat> support resources, and you kind of got to pick and choose. And um, I can tell you a little bit about what mine was. So my wellness plan, it, there was three focus areas. It was around pain management. I had a ton of physical pain just from the bed rest. My muscles had atrophied. I couldn't. I had no core strength. I couldn't even you know lift up my kids. So pain management was one really important aspect of it because it was taking so much energy to just physically work through the pain. Second was around mental health, and the third was around momentum. And so for the physical pain, I did months of therapy that was focused on rebuilding that muscle mass that I had lost. I also did cryotherapy. So that's like sitting in this cryo sauna that where you're immersed in like a cold vapor that's negative. Freezing yourself. Yes, essentially. <laughs> Although I do think I looked a little younger coming out of the chamber. So <laughs> uh, maybe a plus. But that really helped to kind of reduce some of the like pelvic floor pain and inflammation, yeah. et cetera. But then I also worked with a naturopath um, to test what hormones had been depleted. And she was able to see that my you know, DHEA and cortisol levels were really low and those control your energy, your sleep cycles, your mood, your stress levels. So I was like, trying to drive this car with no fuel. So she was able to really help me do some supplement therapy that would spur my body back into production. On the mental health front, I did work with a therapist. I think for me, you know, we, we hire to a profile in some ways. So, you know, our type A control freaks, mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm going to be really binary about everything. I was having a really hard time holding space and balancing the good and the bad. So, yes, I can wholeheartedly love my boys. I can equally resent what the universe required of me to bring them here. There's space for all of that. So working with my therapist, mm-hmm. I was kind of able to go from past up to present and figure out what are some of these thought patterns that I need to undo. Um, And one that I'll actually just quickly mention is around the imposter syndrome, because I think it's something that a lot of women, um, you know, uh, battle. And what's interesting to me is that I have always been able to, in a state of health, channel that imposter syndrome into extraordinary capacity. This was the first time where it actually felt incapacitating where I was like curled up in the fetal position. So there's something about a sleep and a health deprived mind that I think is the devil's playground and the importance of, you know, syndromes that we may carry and, and how we can use them to our advantage in a state of health. So that was what a ton of my um, therapy focused on. For momentum, you know, the thing for me was that when you're, when you're lying on your back for an extended period of time, inertia sets in and you just, you become sedentary. And that's the body's way of maintaining whatever muscle, energy, brain capacity, you know, whatever you have developed up until that point. If you lay there long enough, you atrophy. And that's the process of loss. And Mm -hmm. so at that point, there's only one way to propel yourself forward or to get momentum. And the nurses would come into my room. They'd lean in. They'd give me a hug. I'd hug them back. And they'd use their strengths to pull me up. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to the firm, I felt like my life was modeling that physical State that I wasn't in, in the hospital, so I hired an executive coach, and um, we were focused on present to future, like how do I get my momentum back, right? And and she was a guide for me, and we got very tactical about what wellness and wholeness would look like for me in a postpartum world to get me back to that point where I felt like I was chasing, you know, my work dreams, my ambitions, and having space to to do the motherhood. Thing with it, like like all of them, to be dreams and ambitions. So that is just from a um, you know the steps that I took in my own journey <clears throat> for uh, wellness. And to the COVID question, I I guess you know I don't know. It's it's been a little while that I think I've been in a healthy state. But what's interesting is after shelter in place kicked in, I noticed that. Uh, I had some behaviors that had been coping mechanisms when I was in the mm. hospital that yeah. started surfacing. So, for example, sugar-rich foods and emotional eating started to happen again. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I, I started talking to my therapist again, and I was like, "Hey, this is weird. I don't understand why all of a sudden this is happening." And as I'm journaling, I realized that, like, all the underlying feelings. Um, and these co- during COVID actually mirrored what I felt during my hospital stay. So fear, grief, anger, atrophy, not being able to move because life depends on it. All of those were the same things that I felt when I was in the hospital. So to have those behaviors return this far out of it, that's the sign of trauma, right? And so while I think last time when I was in the hospital, I was carrying that trauma in my womb and I I no longer have one. We, we, I became a hister sister in December, but I do have other carriers and that would be like your heart and your mind. And we're not meant to carry this much weight, like to see this type of collective suffering and pain. Yeah. I don't think we're meant to do that. So I think that there are a lot of people who might be revisiting old trauma pathways and there's no defined time horizon like for when that's going to end, like we literally have no idea. So I think the two things that I would just say, whether you're a new mother and, you know, motherhood is new motherhood is isolating as it is, and then to add this on top of it, or if you're somebody who you you find are revisiting trauma, I think the two things is uh, this, however you're responding right now, is a normal way to respond to an abnormal situation. So there isn't any one way you're supposed to feel. Healing is not linear, neither is grief. Allow yourself to feel what needs to be felt, um, because I think that like like pain and suffering demands to be felt. So I think mm-hmm. that's one thing. And then the other thing that you know was also really interesting to me um, when I was talking with a friend who's a therapist. She's like, our bodies uh respond to things that we've remembered, right? So when something shows up and it feels like it's a place we've been before, a lot of our responses uh, mirror what happened at that time. And so she said, during this time, make sure that you pay attention to the difference between what you remember and what you know. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has been really powerful for me, which is to remind myself and reorient myself I am here, I am loved, my boys are here, my boys are loved, I am healthy, I am whole, like, all of those mantras that sometimes can feel very fluffy, it's actually you reminding yourself of what you know to be true, despite the fact that the circumstances around you feel like this other place you've been in. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know if that's yeah. helpful, but that's It is. What's I been think we I think
0: everybody on this uh, on this call or this podcast needed that reminder. I know I did. So, yeah. so, yeah. so thank you. And, and Leticia, yeah. I'm going to leave the last word with you. So no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Share the one thing you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you were first starting to understand your depression and anxiety.
2: You will find words you can do this, but you cannot do it alone. And I think that for me, you know, as somebody dealing with chronic anxiety during COVID, those words still ring very true. Um, and mindfulness and being present and giving myself acknowledgement right acknowledging what I am feeling is just as critical today as it would have been at the beginning of this journey so I think to everybody who is feeling you know the physiological effects of stress today in this environment um Sometimes meditating, for example, actually gave me more anxiety, but mindfulness and giving my feelings words and, you know, just writing down what I was feeling. I t- right now I feel stress. I feel my heart racing. I feel this. And putting pen to paper and putting names to feelings, just not feeling like I have to do it all alone has been has been a huge saver for me.
0: Uh. Wow, ladies, <laughs> you are amazing. You have inspired me, and there are so many people that that needed to hear your stories, needed to hear what you had to say today. So, um, my deep gratitude to all three of you for for being on the show.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Jen, too, for uh, for making this a priority. You know, in the firm's um, well-being programs and initiatives.
0: I'm so grateful Leticia, Elizabeth, and Caitlin could be with us today to share their personal journeys with postpartum depression. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword, work well, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the Work Well podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at jenfish 23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.